Welcome to the UC Architects Podcast. This is episode 30, recorded Sunday, November 10th, 2013. I'm here with my friends John Cook, Justin Morris, Michael Van Horenbeek, Michelle DeRoy, and Dave Stork. And before we get started, we want to remind you that this episode is proudly sponsored by Instant Technologies, with solutions for link e-discovery, real-time alerts, and contact center deployments. For information on Instant or to try a free evaluation, visit instant-tech.com or download and try their e-discovery application at tryhrauditor.com. And first up, uh, we'll talk about uh, Microsoft short list for the next CEO. Uh, Five people making the cut so far. Uh, Among them, uh, my favorite, uh, Alan Mulally from uh, Ford Motor Company, who I think would be a a great uh, person to lead the company. Uh, We also have uh, Stephen Elop, the uh, former Nokia CEO, Um, Tony Bates, who used to run uh, Skype, and Sadia Nadella, who works for Microsoft as the cloud and enterprise chief. Um, who do you guys think is a, is a good fit there? <clears throat> uh, me? Is <laughs> <laughs> it come with a parking space? Well, the keynotes would certainly be a lot shorter. Um, I, I think, uh, I think Alan Mullally is a great business person. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of, there's a lot, been a lot of discussions about that. I mean, I think, you know, some people are saying, well, he's kind of old and, you know, could he run a tech company? But I, I would probably argue that, um, Ford's been pretty good at, uh, at their tech lately, um, with, uh, with their, you know, car stuff, um, I think uh, they've been ahead of the curve. They've got an office in Silicon Valley, um, you know, trying to reach out to that kind of younger market. So, I mean, I think, you know, he, in that sense, he kind of gets it. Well, and, and not only that, he, he's been able to um, kind of steer a large company through, you know, extremely tough economic times. I mean, Ford Motor Company is the, the only automaker that did not take TARP money for the bailout. Um, and and they've got you know uh, substantial numbers right now and and I think people give him a lot of respect for being able to to do something that a lot of people didn't think was going to be possible and so you know as much as um, you know there's a lot of competition out there with with other companies uh, uh, from Microsoft I think he'd be a, a great addition to uh, you know help steer the company in in, in new directions. But at the, at the same point, you got to look at, you know, um, uh, Elop and Bates, you know, both uh, uh, former CEOs of companies that either uh, were absorbed by Microsoft or in the process of being absorbed. So they've got that inside view. Um, you know, that that's definitely gives them a foot up. I, I still think Mulally's the, the good guy. Well, um, on, on that note, uh, I personally think that Tony Bates is a, uh, I'd not say a better candidate, but makes a little bit more uh, chance of, of becoming next CEO. As you said, he, uh, if, if, I, if, if I'm correct, he was he used to be the CEO of Sky before getting bought by Microsoft, and they had a pretty steady and, and you know, huge growth uh, while he was running it. And before that, he was, uh, was at Cisco, right? Mm-hmm. So he does have a broad knowledge of the environment, has been working for Microsoft for quite a long time right now. As as far as I heard, I'm not an insider, uh, has done some good, pretty good things. So from that point of view, I think he, he does make the uh, top of the short list. I think a lot of it depends on what they want to be. You know, what, what, you know, if they want to continue the services and devices company thing, I think maybe somebody, you know, one that maybe came out of retail or, you know, some other type of product uh, environment might be a better fit if they want to focus on services. I think you know maybe that's that's a different type of person too. So I think you know 
fundamentally they have to either decide if they want to continue with that direction or go in a new direction. Um, yeah, I, I know they need help right now. I mean, that, you know, so here's an example. Like, so with uh, my Surface, right, all of a sudden I got Surface Pro 2, um, which I like, but I now I'm trying to download all my uh, applications I purchased in the App Store, and some of them come down and don't work. So then you get in this scenario where, okay, who's responsible? The the App Store people say, well, it's a Surface problem, and then if your domain joined, now it's a pro support problem. It's like, you know, guys, this is why you're dying in consumer. You know what I mean? I'm on the phone for three hours, and I still got nowhere on this on this problem. So uh, somebody that needs you know, to, to bring all of these units together and, and have a plan is, is, I think, you know, the key move for whoever does take over. Because sometimes it just seems like they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? The one hand is they have no clue what the other is doing. Yeah, I think I think Elop would be a really good candidate because he's got that like prehistory with Microsoft already before he went over to Nokia. Um, you know, he's probably learned a lot from the product perspective, being Nokia as well. Um, I think there's a bit of speculation going around if if he would cut out being in uh, Xbox if he got the role, but uh, that, you know, I think that's just what it is, speculation and hearsay. Um, and I think he'd be a good a good all-around candidate that has, like, aligns quite well with the products and uh, services, sort of, uh, devices and services vision. Assuming he didn't burn a lot of bridges when he left, right? <laughs> yeah. He didn't, like, you know, do a lawn job on uh, <laughs> building, you know, building one or something. Do a, do a Sanofsky. <laughs> I'm out of here, punks. <laughs> so yeah, I, you know, it's a good question. Um, uh, it's it's actually interesting because you know the stock price is, is is moving more than I've seen it in 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 forever. So it's actually to me really interesting to see you know uh, what you know the changes. Um, last one, last time I checked, it was up to like thirty eight bucks, which is huge compared to what it's been sitting at for the last decade so yeah i mean there's been a lot of things changing lately at microsoft i mean you know the the search for a new ceo you're starting to see some pretty good traction with windows 8 you've got the surface coming out the xbox coming out um windows phone you know passing up uh, blackberry for market share um lots of things that i think are helping to drive that stock price but it'll be interesting to see what the ceo change does you know on, on the first day that that you know the successor takes office yeah, I think I would see like if if Mullally got the job, I would see that how um, that uh, former Pepsi CEO got made. Uh, John Scully was got no. made CEO of Apple back no. in the eighties. Um, that was, like, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> yeah, so, like it sounds like there's, there's potential for like someone very business oriented to take the helm, but also you know they could send it down a, a really bad path and lose all that that good sort of technical degree. Well, well I think, it's, you know, good. I was going to say, I, I think Mullally, uh, one of the things that's kind of helped with his success is he's always been able to uh, delegate and rely on people who, you know, had good business smarts in whatever particular area they were working in. He wasn't, you know, a dictator or anything like that. So hopefully, you know, that'll that'll continue to be the case if he, if he assumes uh, Balmer's place. Uh, but, you know, a, a valid point, you know, um, Elop and Bates both, you know, come from the tech tech space. Um um, and, and that gives them a, a you know, a, a foot up in the, in the running, I think. But from what I've heard and, and I've read a lot, you know, coming from Detroit where, you know, Ford Motor Company is based and everybody here loves Mulally, um, especially, uh, you know, my family. I'm the only person in four generations to have not worked at Ford Motor Company. Um, really? I, I, I think, 
uh, you know, from what I've read, he is the is the person to beat right now. That he's got, he's at the top of the list. So, but the question too, why would he leave Ford? I mean, you know, right now, in a lot of ways, Ford is killing it. Why would why would he want to leave now? Well, I think, um, and he's been somewhat vague. He's been interviewed locally uh, a little bit about you know the prospect of of leaving Ford and. And moving on, and, and and the same reason that you know some of us leave to go on to a different job, it's a different challenge. You know, yeah. he he pulled off essentially the impossible by not only surviving through this whole uh, auto bailout, but thriving through it. I mean, they can do no wrong. Everybody, a lo- he gets a lot more respect because they didn't take any money, even though they were in a position where they they probably should have. Um, he, he gets a lot of respect for, you know, hunkering down and saying, let's get rid of the fat. Let's do what we need to do to survive through this. And, you know, now he's smelling like roses and Ford is doing fabulous. Well, they need, they need to do something with Lincoln, though, just as, just as an opinion. <laughs> he's not finished until Lincoln is, is, is turned around. But, <laughs> well, but, but, look, but look what he did do. I mean, he got rid of he got rid of Volvo. He got rid of, you know, some, yeah, some of the other brands. Um, and they, you know, he did what he needed to do. Yeah, but the only thing that you need to keep in mind is that uh, Ford actually it, they needed to trim a lot of fat that was uh, you know growing on on top of Ford. He basically slimmed down the company um, massively by you know selling Volvo, uh, closing quite a lot of factories. Like for instance, here in Belgium, closed uh, closed one of the biggest ones they had here. Um, yeah, yeah, they did. Um, so. That didn't make him very popular uh, abroad. Maybe that made him very popular in uh, in the U.S. because it's a U.S. company that survived, even though they substantially became smaller than they were before. But um, if Microsoft were a company in need of something like that, I'd probably say, yeah, he's got good chances and uh, the right mindset to make it happen, just you know, to make those um, difficult decisions and cut where it is needed to be cut. But Microsoft doesn't seem to be a company where you need to cut right now. Um, there might be some side projects or things that might leave someone wondering what they're doing, and I, I agree. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to come in and just cut off those limbs, you know. Um, they, they've chosen a path forward, and you might argue whether it's a good path or not. But, you know, uh, turning around 180 degrees and then going the other way, I don't think that would be a good choice and i don't see that happening anytime soon no and, and i don't think he would come in as a hatchet man either and just start lobbing off you know uh limbs of of the company i i think he would come in and and do a pretty good job of looking at what's out there and, and looking what it's been able to do for the company and what it could do um and and go from there now i, I could be drastically wrong but you know as as someone who lives in the community where his large company uh, thrives, I, I could definitely see him coming in and and uh, and doing good for the company. Yeah, sure. And one thing that I'll I'll give him is that he's if he would make uh, make it to the be to be the next CEO, he'll have a uh, refreshing view on things, uh, something that other people currently working for Microsoft might have less than he does. So, might be a positive. Yeah, and, and he's he's definitely done some things that that disappointed people. I mean, they sold off Jaguar. I was kind of disappointed in that because I I could no longer get a discount on a Jaguar. But um, yeah, we'll see. So good luck to the. I know that, that uh, Did you see that that uh, they're, they're, that the crossover they're coming out with might be on Daddy's radar <laughs> <laughs> or the McCann? There you go. 
Well, but, you know, John, you know, Ford's got the sync. It likes to talk to, you know, Microsoft devices. And, and it will talk to Ford. I think, yeah, it's a great devices. system. I think they're killing it. My, my uh, cousin's got a uh, uh, Taurus, and I think it's a gorgeous, gorgeous car. Yeah, I've got the Taurus SHO. I love it. So. Yeah. All right, next up, uh, registration for Link Conference Canada. Uh, for I'm going to keep on talking about cars. <laughs> Screw tech. <I'm> like, <laughs> uh, the registration is now open, and um, we will have a link on the on the summary page for it. So uh, if you're if you're in Canada and thinking about going to uh, Link Conference 2014, uh, we'll get the information out to you. Now this is and this is officially a Microsoft. It's a event, it's a Microsoft right? event. Yeah, it's uh it's in. Well, they yeah, scrub, they scrub, they scrubbed the Europe one for, as far as we know, right? Yeah, December fourteenth, uh, or December fourth, I should say, of next month. So um, we'll have a, a link to that if you're interested in going. And uh, we'll head into the link topics uh, first. Uh, link Server 2013 Multi-Tenant Hosting Pack Deployment Guide. Um, if you're interested in doing multi-tenant hosting, there's a guide out on, on what you need to know. And Justin, you took a quick look at that. Yeah, so I had a bit of a look at this today, and um, it's good to see some documentation being published online to um, guide some of the service providers out there around the Link Hosting Pack V2, which is the, the 2013 iteration of this, um, and it does allow those hosting providers to build out a hosted offering that, you know, if they want to, can include the hosted VoIP as well, which is sort of that key gap in between on-premises and Link Online right now, so... Uh, TechNet documentation around this is what I, I think was going to fuel more adoption and, and roll out of this. But um, as a, you know, a lot of service providers can be quite uh, slow to adopt and roll and productize technology, especially you know something as, as new as this. So um, I'm not sure. There's only a handful that I know of that have this capability right now, um, and how much traction they're getting is um, somewhat debatable. But it is good to see. More uh, public info uh, coming out online and uh, as these service providers to sort of get it out there to more and more of the masses. Excellent. That'll be something yeah, I can I can read on my flight to uh, Summit next week uh, as we look into hosting. Do you know if um, I haven't looked at it? Is there any additional support for splitting namespaces with anyone other than 365 yet? Uh, I don't know. To be honest, I haven't really seen. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the one gap that I think all the hosters are are dying. You know, that's the one key thing that if they could get, I think a lot more hosters would be more viable um, yeah. in kind of a hybrid model. But right now, only Microsoft has that privilege. <laughs> they don't seem to want to give it up either. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of their, their nice little, like, uh, like, like uh, yeah, betting chip, I suppose. Um, but, like, the thing with um, the multi-tenant partner stuff is there's a lot of sort of, there's not 100% feature parity um, in a lot of ways. You know, things like, uh, control panel doesn't work for link hosted pack and things like if you want you know audio conferencing you need to split that out to a provider and Skype integration's not native and there's a whole bunch of things that require third party products to be able to um, you know provide that feature parity with so it's something that if I was a service provider I'd be looking at it sort of very closely and then saying okay well how viable is this and is it worthwhile or should we just go and deploy multiple instances of um, Service 2013 on-prem and do it that way to provide it to our customers. Did, did you say the control panel does not work for multi-tenant hosting? Correct. Yikes. So, uh, yeah, get, get friendly with PowerShell. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. I mean, even even dedicated is the same way. You 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 only have access to your tenant with the remote show. Right. Right. Interesting. All right. Well, thanks, Justin. Um, next up, Jonathan McKinney, one of the uh, the big names in the the link space. He's one of the the uh, MCMs. He has written a script to back up audio codes gateways, and uh, I think this is great. It works with uh, firmware up through 6.4. Uh, it does not work with the 6.6 firmware yet. He's he's still working on that. But uh, the fact that you can uh, use PowerShell to go out and get information and the data and back it up, I think, uh, makes life a lot easier. And, and maybe we'll ultimately see an extension of this um, for something like Chris Cook's cool uh, 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 link. Yeah. Um, documentation script. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what else comes of this. Yeah, I met him at uh, um, Jonathan at um, at, uh, at LinkConf. Good guy. Yeah, real nice uh, guy. Real, audio, real smart. Audio codes needs all the help they can get with their interfaces. Sometimes I'm, I'm still <laughs> shocked at their. Oh yeah. Help <laughs> sometimes it's like seriously, guys, you got to update this thing. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, and, and I, I saw this and and I kind of was chatting with people online about it would be nice if, you know, more of these device manufacturers supported uh, PowerShell. And I got responses from uh, Ferrari, which says they already do support it. And um, I got a response from Kemp saying that they're about to release a PowerShell module for managing their products. So, um, you know, HP released um, for ILO now three and four. Yeah, I saw I saw that too. So it's it's nice to cool. see these these uh, partners coming out with PowerShell support. That's like hard. That's that's nerd central right there. <laughs> well, you know, you know managing yeah. ILO through the shell. Yeah, but you know, I, I look at it from you know most of us on this call now. We're, you know, we're consultants, so we're going out and we're constantly building things. Um, and so if we can automate that and just feed it a CSV script or, or something like that, even better, um, as well as the ability to document it and back it up, I think um, it's a lot easier when, when you've got a PowerShell module or some scripts that follow the, the specific um, uh, formatting and things, and you're not out there trying to figure where everything is and, and things like that, so... Yeah, some of our guys internally have been doing a lot of work um, on plugging into both the REST API for Sonus SPCs and the um, CDR accounting that version 3.0 of the firmware provides uh, and backing that off to a free radius server because uh, unfortunately it doesn't support uh, Microsoft IAS, so you need to back out all the CDR data to um, a free radius server, but it allows you to uh, you know, pull out nice graphs and call detail records from the Sonus boxes, um, and around the sort of documentation side of things, and you know, looking at a config offline without having to run up the um, the SBC virtual machine. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of potential there, and it's just you know whether it all sort of becomes grassroots out of the community first, or if Sonus starts to support it commercially. Yeah, the, uh, with the gateways. Um, uh, Dossier from Event Zero. He's working on adding um, that kind of monitoring, direct gateway monitoring stuff. I think to the product too, which is pretty cool. Yeah, once we get that, it's going to be um, it's going to open up things a lot because we get a lot of demand from customers right now that say, oh, you know, I can get tons of reports out of Link, but that last leg of the call out of the SPC to the carrier, I've got no real visibility of. Yeah, it'd be nice to tie that all together. So, and you guys are doing cool stuff over there. So it'd be interesting to see what you guys come up with. 
Um, and speaking of um, uh, cool scripts and, and tools and stuff like that, James Cousin, who uh, we've talked uh, about before, he did the uh, call pickup manager tool, which we talked about in episode 29, and the uh, database mirror manager tool, which we talked about previously, now has a cool tool called the centralized logging tool for Link 2013. And if you've used um, CLS or centralized logging, um, it's nice in that you can spin up logging across an entire pool uh, from one machine. You don't have to, you know, go and spin it up on each of the machines manually. Uh, capture the data and then export it all to a text file. That works great, but it can be a little cumbersome to remember all the scenarios and all the other options that are available there. So um, James came up with a, a little PowerShell script. It, it pops up a little GUI window, as do all of his other scripts, and allow you to kind of pick and choose all the options for centralized logging, uh, start it and stop it, and, and things like that, and takes a lot of the uh, the guesswork out and makes it much easier to use centralized logging. So uh, if you've been uh, somewhat afraid of uh, using CLS in the past and you've resorted to just using the link logging tool uh, manually on each server, uh, take a look at this. I think you'll find it makes your job a, a lot easier. So, All right, show of hands, how many people still use, use uh, you know, localized debugging and snooper versus CLS. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> too, it's, uh, you, know, you know what I see? I seem to use it more is on edge servers. Um, you know, internally with a front end pool or anything like that, I tend to I tend to use CLS uh, probably ninety percent of the time. Right. So. No, I mean I use it when it, if I've if I've only got one server and it's like a small deployment, and I'll just be like, ah, oh, you know, screw it, let's run out the login tool and do it that way. Right. Now we had um, we had an issue internally um, around was it oh uh, fast busy uh, users would sporadically uh, pick up the phone and try to make a phone call and get a fast busy and um, in troubleshooting it I was running a link logging tool manually on each machine because I was also running Wireshark at the same time and watching Wireshark in real time while I was talking to our provider. So, But other than that, it's almost always centralized logging. And I, I love the always-on feature, too. So check that out. Definitely. Yeah, next up, uh, Greg from gregandsydney.com and somebody else that's making some, some pretty cool uh, GUI-based uh, PowerShell scripts has uh, updated his script called madcap.ps1, and madcap is for creating and managing uh, common area phones in Link 2013. So this can be somewhat arduous sometimes, especially if you're not doing it all the time. Um, and his, Greg's uh, script, you know, pops up all the different options and allows you to just kind of pick and choose rather than trying to do them manually through PowerShell. Um, and if you've ever dealt with common area phones and you know uh, you pretty much have to set them all up in PowerShell, there's there's nothing in the uh, control panel to really create them. So uh, so Greg's script kind of takes all the hard work out of that, and it, it's uh, it's pretty nice. I play around with it uh, as we deployed some common area phones, and it, and it seems to work real good. So yeah, he writes a lot of good stuff. His uh, profile manager I use constantly. It's basically one yeah, of the first things I install on a machine. And his hide and link uh, hotkey solution, uh, I think, is pretty cool too. So, um, yeah, so he's a he's a he's a super switch on guy. No one I was out in Sydney uh, two weeks ago and, and caught up with him for lunch and like the sort of stuff oh, that cool. he comes up with is uh, is yeah, he's insane. He's a really talented guy. Yeah, he's supposed to be at uh, at Link Tappers too. Yeah, yeah, he said he's going to be there. Very cool. 
And, to get him, uh, I was talking with him, you know, to try to figure out a way to to to, to get Link to work with uh, the Heath Phillips Hue lights for presents. That would be very epic. Yeah, yeah that would yeah. be really cool. I I know John, we've uh, kind of tweeted back and forth about that. That would be kind of cool. That would be I really think. cool because then you could just screw in a bulb and a lamp and then have it be presents. <laughs> yes, I reckon if, yes. if anybody knows it, it would be it would be Greg because he's sort of he's got a like a grasp of all that home automation style stuff like yeah. CBUS and that kind of thing. Yeah. Right, good stuff. Um, all right, uh, next up, how to publish Link Server 2013 web services for uh, Windows Server 12, 2012 R2 uh, web application proxy. There's a mouthful. Justin, what do you know about this? Yeah, so this actually came to light um, a while ago via some guys in Australia, again in Australia from a company called Cloud with a K, uh, and one of the guys out there, Mark Tablanche, uh, posted about this, and it's recently... Um, been posted by Doug uh, Dietrich on his blog about actually how to achieve it and with Server 2012 R2. Uh, and it's a good alternative, I think, for you know, customers that obviously can't go TMG and you know, UAG is a bit uh, cost prohibitive and, and doesn't support all the functionality of Link and they're not uh, too keen on the scalability or enterprise readiness of the um, IIS application request routing or the, the pirate reverse proxy, as people have been calling it. Uh, <laughs> I heard that. Yeah? <laughs> pirate proxy. Yeah. R, I-S-R. Yeah, so... Uh, so the web application proxy in um, 2012 R2 is a good alternative, uh, but the only prerequisite with this is that you do require ADFS to be deployed. Um, uh, otherwise, the wizard will just it won't even progress without you specifying ADFS details. So that's kind of one little gotcha there. But um, other than that, it, it makes setting up the actual reverse proxy stuff for all the link workloads uh, super easy. That's cool. Cool. Yeah, like I like there's all these options coming out now, you know, to to because I mean, it's still one of those things is is what do you use for the you know what do you use for the proxy? The proxy is a critical component now, and it's sort of like a lot of people don't the really, I think a lot of customers still don't grasp the pro the, the proxy piece as much as that you know you'd think it'd be obvious by at this point you know they understand the edge, but they still don't realize how much it was my experience how many you know how how critical the proxy is and and how much a role it plays. And then it's like, well, we don't have one of those, but, you know, like, well, you're going to get one. <laughs> so it's nice to see that all the alternatives other than, well, you know. And it's nice to see that some of the firewall manufacturers are starting to come out with, you know, modules or licenses that allow you to do reverse proxy. Uh, uh, or not firewall, uh, load balancer companies, um, you know, Kemp and, yeah. and F5 and, and all these guys are coming out with modules now that will let you do reverse proxy directly within their appliance. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the uh, Camp VLM. It's like you can set those things up in like five minutes flat. Yep, and you can get, uh, you know, that's a, a good segue. You can get a, a free demo uh, VLM from Camp too. So, you know, if you need something in your lab, you, you, you download it, spin it up in uh, ESX or, uh, or Hyper-V, and, and you're off and running. So it works great. Yeah, it's great. And, and the GUI is exactly the same as, as the uh, hardware appliance, so... You know, if you transition later, it's a it's a, a pretty quick uh, learning curve. And if you need to look at something else, like our uh, uh, if you're tracing through uh, a snooper or centralized logging uh, files for uh, voice issues, and you come across an ICE error, sometimes it can be kind of a pain to tr try and figure out what those errors mean and and what to do about them. 
Well, another cool tool about uh, from somebody out in the uh, uh, third party is uh, the ice warning flag decoder. And this is a little GUI. It's an installer. It's not a PowerShell uh, a script. But what it does is it allows you to kind of punch in a, um, an ice error, and it will tell you things about, you know, what it actually means and some and usually how to go about uh, f- fixing it or at least where to look to fix it. So um, if you're if you find yourself having to look through ice errors all the time, uh, this might be a pretty good solution to install on your on your servers or on your workstation and uh, and help track those down. So we'll put a link to that. Yeah, this thing's very 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 uh, helpful. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I played around with it, and uh, I'm thinking about maybe putting it on some of our servers internally so that it's always available. But um, yeah, so, you know, it just removes some of that obscurity. So um, next up, we have uh, the Link 2013 Ignite videos from uh, Microsoft's Channel Nine. Uh, have been released, and you can download them now. But uh, our own Tom Arbuthnot has taken all the work out of it and adapted his uh, download script with uh, a new CSV file for all the videos. So you can download them all kind of in the background using bits. And uh, I did, and it's a, it's a ton of videos, um, some, some fabulous content. So if you're looking at uh, or, if, or if you're looking for some content from uh, the Ignite series from this year, definitely look at Tom's script uh, to download those videos. So, And next up, we'll head over to the, ex- the Exchange topics. And uh, first up, the server component states in uh, Exchange 2013. And uh, Dave, uh, have you looked at this at all? Yeah, a, a little bit, um, because... Um well, this is, this is probably something that uh, a lot of uh, new Exchange admins uh, don't know uh, how they work and why they are important. Because, uh, well, uh, Microsoft did uh, post a blog post uh, a few weeks back that explains them, and uh, I would, wanted to point uh, some attention to it. Uh, well, s- server component states are in Exchange 2013 a new um, well feature, a sort of a, a, um, a more granular control about the uh, different components of Exchange 2013. And for instance, uh, the managed availability process uh, can check uh, different components of Exchange, and when uh, a component is uh, unhealthy, deemed in- unhealthy. It is um, uh, set in an inactive state so that an, another exchange server will be uh, used before this unhealthy uh, exchange server without completely taking the, the whole server offline or uh, unusable. Um, so um, it, 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 it is something that you uh, probably should know because, uh, it, yeah, well, it immediately impacts your availability and your, your uh, health of the complete exchange environment. Um, and the reason why I, I uh, encountered it was a, uh, a failed uh, cumulative update. Um, and uh, the, there are some s- strange things happening there. Um, because the uh, cumulative update installer um, puts some of the uh, components in an act- inactive state. But when you uh, when it fails, it sometimes does not uh, come up, and you have to really check every uh, component. Um, and 
make it active again. But the trick is is that um, when you request a state to be uh, to become inactive, um, you have to put in a, a requester, and you have several requesters, and um, uh, when the installer, for instance, uh, uh, requests an inactive state, and uh, it, it could be another requester than, for instance, uh, uh, the script from Michael, the DAG maintenance script to put a Exchange 2013 server in uh, DAG maintenance, uh, then you can get uh, an, an issue that the component won't be active again. And then you have to really dig in, in um, well, uh, why the component is deemed inactive. And, uh, well, in that article by, by uh, the Exchange team, uh, nicely explains that, and you can. Uh, it is a very uh, helpful tool to, uh, uh, well, troubleshoot issues like like a failed cumulative update uh, installation. And well, we have had some problems with uh, cumulative update installations failing. So, I think that's uh, this this blog post uh, and and other blog posts about this subject are certainly some. Something uh, any Exchange admin for an uh, Exchange 2013 environment uh, should know. Yeah, um, and on that note, I, I totally agree that the server component states can be confusing the very first time that you encounter oh, yeah. those. Um, especially, you know, you've got the local component states and you've got the ones that are uh, written down in Active Directory. So there are basically two places where you can have a look and they should match, but they can sometimes mismatch. So as you said, as soon as there is a CU failing or any piece of software which probably uses these uh, server component states, uh, fails or fails to actually revive the components uh, properly, you you run into issues. And without you know wanting to brag about it, um, there we'll put up a link to a script that I wrote. Uh, I think a few weeks before the Exchange team posted their um, server component states part, which helps you find out which component put what part or what component into a uh, maintenance mode um, because as you said there are five requesters but uh, just as easily as that I could put in anything for a requester without you knowing it so um, especially in a team where multiple people are working with exchange if you have someone putting a component into a maintenance mode or just in an inactive state uh, and using a non-proper requester you might actually end up in trouble uh, or you might uh, end up uh, trying to figure out which one it, they used and why it was put into a, a uh, inactive state. So, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely something um, I agree with you on, Dave, that a lot of exchange admins need to grasp this and, by extension, the entire uh, managed availability part uh, because that's, oh, that's yeah. a big, big thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, on a, a little note that um, I have to check your your script on on exploring the Exchange Server component states because uh, one with the troubleshooting I did last week, uh, I really had some issues at first uh, to figuring out why and which requester put something in in, in an inactive state. So th does that script help in any ca in that case? 
Um, yeah, so basically what the script does is uh, it will check the registry on the server that you're trying to troubleshoot. It will find the components in what state they are. It will uh, tell you what uh, what time they were changed into that state and what the requester was and output that on screen. So you'll immediately know, okay, well, this subtransport component is put into maintenance by, uh, for instance, the requester uh, maintenance uh, or whatever requester is being used at that time. Um, because I found my Myself in my lab uh, trying to figure out what happened or who did what, even though I'm the only one in that lab, uh, only to find out that health manager came in, put a component in an inactive state, and to quickly find that out, I wrote this script and then uh, got, got an enumeration. The only thing that I still have been meaning to do is to um, expand this um, script to include the Active Directory locations because it only takes into account the state of the server uh, in its local registry. Uh, right. Well, I, I could have used that this week, so I should have known about this one. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, thanks. All right, thanks, guys. Uh, next up, Exchange 2013 Cumulative Update 3. John, what do you know about this? I know it's not out yet, but uh, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we should be expecting it pretty soon. I'm not sure the the um, the actual release date, um, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, with the with CU, it's a large communal update. Um, all the typical um, guidance will apply. You know, your web config will get overwritten. Um, so expect to have to re 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 reapply that uh, info into web config for for Lincoln OA integration. Um, I believe that the external URLs might get reset uh, back to null. Um, so again, you know, check any custom configuring. Is it the pet you think you would you say? Uh, uh, voice prompts, custom prompts might get overwritten. Yeah, well, custom prompts will get overwritten. Of course, you know, editing custom prompts is not uh, a supported scenario, but um, some organizations like ours um, do, you know, record some some customized ones and, and overwrite the ones that come with Exchange. And uh, anytime you put in an, a new uh, CU, you have to go back and and replace those files again. So that's uh, something to keep in mind. And and like you said, the the web.config file where you have to go in and um, re-enter the information for link and OWA integration. Otherwise, users will log in and, and they won't be able to sign in for IAM and presence or do any kind of uh, uh, messaging. Um, and if they try to log in, then they just get an error saying that it's not available right now. So um, you have to go back in and, and redo those and reset the uh, the pool for those to, to kick in. Um, and then, um, Michael, you were saying that you've, you've noticed it before too with it previous CUs where it overwrote the, the external URLs? Yeah, so one of the things um, that I saw is that after upgrading, uh, the external URL values for OWA and ActiveSync were missing. Um, and I didn't pay much attention to it um, until I recently found out that I had it with um, with uh, the, the, the latest CU upgrade as well. So I'm, I'm you know, bit worried uh, what's causing it. Um, I think it has to do something with the fact that you have to do, redo all the configuration in OWA uh, through the web config and that, you know, because of the back-to-back -back build, uh, there is something that gets changed, but it shouldn't uh, because it can be disruptive if you don't take that into account or this means that you will have to account for some sort of downtime in case you're upgrading your uh, internet-facing servers, which it shouldn't, so yeah. 
Yeah, we had that uh, uh, also with our uh, ActiveSync external URL, and uh, with in in that case, uh, the auto discovers uh, didn't work for uh, ActiveSync clients. So uh, yeah, that that one. I I really hope that they fix that, and that we don't have to uh, meddle with uh, text files in uh, in webconfig and and reapply settings and stuff like that. Yeah, I've I've complained about. The web config thing still. I mean, why why can't we just go back it, to how? What was it? Was it SP one twenty ten did that and what SP two fixed yeah, that? Exactly. Is so. Can we have that back, please. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and 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 um, well, that that are the most uh, important improvements. Uh, but I also want to to well hope that there are new functionality, and I'm um um well one thing is the uh. I'm still waiting for an option that um, the signature for users is, is, is stored in the mailbox and that every Outlook uh, uh, client can use it, uh, that, that ActiveSync could use it, um, and, and OWA can use it. Because now, uh, at the moment, you, you have AutoDiscover, so your Outlook is configured, uh, well, pretty, pretty um, um, okay. Um, it's it's just filling your credentials and go uh, when you don't have a domain on computer. Uh, but every time I forget to uh, import or or uh, make my signatures um, uh, again on that specific computer. So uh, w when that feature is uh, is is implemented, I will be a very happy camper. <laughs> And another feature is the uh, the behavior of the sent items um, uh, when you have uh, a shared mailbox and you want to uh, mail mail stuff to uh, other people from a shared mailbox. Then uh, previously it was uh, or currently it's um, put in your own sent items folder. Um, but in I think it was in Exchange 2010 Suspect 3 there was an option to uh, on server side uh, to change that behavior uh, for uh, OWA users uh, and stuff like that. So uh, more more control about about where the uh, sent items are delivered or stored um, would also be a feature I would very, very much uh, applaud. Um, and um, uh, well, there's certainly a lot more uh, things I would like to see, uh, especially um, the the OWA app for for iOS currently is is uh, only supported for Office 365 uh, tenants, um, and I would like to see an on-prem uh, support for that. Um, uh, yeah, the curious, curious thing is though that um, our environment uh, for for Exchange is um, uh, completely on-prem. But we do have a relation with Office 365 for uh, Office 2013 installations. And since we did that with, I think, with Tearsync and uh, ADFS, um, uh, we can use the OWA app for iOS, uh, although our Exchange servers are completely on-prem. So that, that's an interesting one. So it, uh, it should be only a relatively small uh, change, but who knows. Um, and um, well, another another thing is is one, one thing that I, that I've encountered with the integration with Link and uh, Exchange is that uh, Link has very advanced regular expressions for dial plans, uh, which is logical because it's it's um, uh, has a 
has its uh, voice enterprise capabilities. Um, but those dial plans, you can't make them uh, as, as, well, not with regular expressions in Exchange. Um, and although that might not be a pro big problem, uh, well, in most cases, I just uh, put in a wildcard uh, dial plan, and uh, everything is uh, just and Exchange does nothing with the dial plan and just uh, hands it over to Link, and then Link uh, decides what to do with it. Um, but I would like to have some more control because the voice access rules um, in Exchange, um, well, you can enter certain phone numbers, and uh, Exchange doesn't uh, check them if you have very limited dial plans. So that's another uh, request I would very much like to see, but it's not a really important stuff, but it could be uh, uh, sometimes for users a helpful thing that uh, Exchange checks the regular for the, the the phone numbers entered. Um, so yeah, uh, that that is it's just a quick list of things I would like to see in Cumulative Update Three, um, and. Yeah, I, I hope to see that, uh, uh, and and I hope to see that soon. Although um, I'm probably going to wait uh, a few weeks before installing it in a production environment, and 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 especially we'll test it before in a lab environment, uh, as as with every cumulative update. Yeah, I'd like to see um, support uh, for Windows 8.1 and IE 11 too. With OA, the, you know, the issue with having to add to compatibility—that's a I big pain in the butt. It also affects Link too. Um, I'd like to see that you know get fixed. Generally, um, <laughs> it's more of a Windows 8.1 thing, IE 11 thing, I think. But um, I think CE 3 might might rectify that as well. And 2012 R2 support installation uh, ah, on, yeah. on operating system support—that that would also be. Uh, Something that would be welcome, especially for a new project, then you can start with 2012 R2. Yeah, I know they were working on also getting the memory footprint uh, for search for fast down, because right now, if you've done your, you know, if you, if you have done the sizing calculations, there's a lot of memory. One of the major reasons for the memory increase in 2013 is a lot of it's are fast, so I think they've been they're making some work, you know, doing some work on getting that reduced, so to help, you know, offset some of that memory pressure. Oh, that would be uh, uh, very helpful. Yeah, fast is awesome, but yeah, it's a definitely fast. Is the, if, if people don't know, sorry, if uh, fast is the acquisition of um, it was it was a standalone product right from the, from the company, and uh, it's just a very highly efficient uh, search engine, um, and that's now what powers Exchange's uh, search. Which if you use search in in Outlook, and but especially OA, it's phenomenal now, in my opinion, in my experience. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a lot faster. Yeah, and I don't, I'm the kind of people, person that doesn't remember anything. So, uh, you know, I, I have my my mail was my repository for like all things. So I search it constantly, and it's far better than it used to be. Yeah, that, does, that so if, I if would memory. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, if the memory footprint of Exchange 2013 will be uh, with with CU3 a lot lower or noticeable lower. That would be welcome because I had some memory problems in an environment last week, and we uh, we had to put in some extra memory. So that would be uh, a nice thing. And every time I um, show him show customers the figures for exchange, they always <laughs> always get scared about the memory requirements. Yeah. Well, yeah, in my opinion, too, in my experience, the, the the hardware requirements are one of the things that is unfortunately slowing 
both it's both, both slowing adoption of 2013, but and also uh, increasing the adoption of uh, 365. Because <laughs> people are like, yeah, well, yeah, that, that, I'm not spending that's... two million dollars on, on exchange servers, so guess what we're going to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a little bit something that I also see, uh, especially with smaller customers uh, that that do want to have some some redundancy, and then, yeah, well, then you have to have to have to pay twice the memory. Yeah. Um, well, uh, uh, one feature um, to, to get back to the feature request list. I, I know uh, at least one feature that won't be in CU3 because it's not really an Exchange 2013 uh, uh, feature, and it's the um, third data center in Azure. And uh, it, it should have been supported in Cumulative Update 2, uh, but the issue is that Azure um, doesn't support uh, multiple uh, incoming uh, side-to-side VPN connections, and that is what uh, what is required for uh, the third data center for the file share witness in order to um, make uh, out-of-site failover possible with Exchange 2013. At least that that's how I understood it from uh, from the Exchange team. Oh, interesting. Um, and, and you had mentioned, um, you and John have both have mentioned um, ActiveSync, and uh, there's a there's a new tool out called EAS Admin, and it's in beta right now. But um, if you need to look at ActiveSync information, such as finding inactive devices or um, selecting devices to be remotely erased or just doing some reporting, there's a cool new um, tool out on TechNet. Uh, EAS admin, and it allows you to do all kinds of things. I mean, it, it, it will look through IAS logs. It will run all of your background commandlets and, and show you all kinds of information that you can't easily see um, either in PowerShell or in ECP. So if you're looking for a way to kind of make it a little easier to manage your um, your ActiveSync devices, uh, by all means, uh, check this out, and uh, we'll certainly put a link up for the, uh, the tool on the summary page. And with uh, all, this, all the talk of uh, Office 365, uh, Dave, you had uh, uh, mentioned something about collecting data to improve Outlook 2013 performance. What's going on with that? Well, that, that's a good question. Well, it is as uh, uh, was a I was triggered by a blog post by uh, uh, Henrik Walter on uh, msexchange.org um, about uh, that Office 65 is now collecting data uh, uh, since the last update of uh, Outlook 2013 um, to improve the performance of uh, Office 65 connectivity. So that sounds like a good thing, um, and um, I'm guessing it's a good thing, but I couldn't really find uh, specific information about that. Um, he did uh, uh, refer to a knowledge base article, and the most important things that are mentioned are is the time required to process a request with Office 365, the time required to retrieve FreeBSD information, and uh, details about unsuccessful connection attempts made to Office 365 are um, collected, so it looks like they are collecting most mostly the the metadata and try to improve the Office 365 uh, environment. Um, that that's the most of the information that's uh, available at the moment, and I certainly don't know which which update uh, is required for this uh, data collection. Um, 
well, and I hope that uh, the lessons learned will will come back to to uh, Exchange 2013 for on-prem installation. So, um, yeah, I've been triggered. I'm 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 watching this, and, and I hope that we uh, hear something more about this uh, uh, change in in, in um, collecting information. Great. And uh, speaking of other, th- or speaking of things that uh, started off with uh, Henrik Walther, um, he wrote a, a blog post about configuring DirSync filtering. And Michael, you had looked at that and uh, and had some thoughts on it. Yeah. So um, ever since uh, DirSync supported filtering, uh, there has been some guidance on how to configure it. And if I remember correctly, the um, initial article just mentioned that you had to do a full confirming import uh, on the management agent in uh, the DirSync appliance, which does basically the same thing as a, or sort of the same thing as a, a full sync. So uh, the only thing that I can imagine is that a lot of people are trying to do filtering and do that uh, in the wrong way, leading to more support cases, which led Microsoft to uh, actually say, well, uh, if you're going to do it first, a full sync, which does a bunch of other things, um, including the fully reconfirming import of all the objects into the metaverse. So it's not really new. Um, the only thing that that's kind of new, but I don't know if it's backed by a KB article, is that you actually need to force the entire full sync to uh, to do the dirtsync filtering. But um, it, you know, ever since it it was supported, it, people have should have been doing it anyway. So it's 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 good to, that it's brought to attention. But I have no idea whether that was such of a, such a problem case that that rose a lot of uh, attention for Microsoft support. I don't know if you guys had any experiences with it. No, no, I didn't know that, that you had to do a full full import uh, the first time. Uh, and I think that I accidentally did that every time because I wanted to check whether the, the synch- synchronization works and then proceed with filtering. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm guessing I did it uh, correct by accident. Okay, well, uh, that that's better <laughs> that you did. <laughs> well, well, uh, um, there are some arguments to, ma- to be made to make it a more conscious choice, but okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, but you know, the thing here is that, that everyone who has a little notion about you know how Dersync works uh, should immediately say, well, okay, well, it's logical to reconfirm the the items in the metaverse and, and reimport them entirely. So by forcing a a full synchronization, you basically do that. So it's 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 a logical thing, and maybe it's a good thing that it's it's stated out there uh, properly by Henrik. So, but it's it's not really new. Okay, good to know. And uh, another topic on Office 365 is comparing the numbers of uh, seats in Office 365 versus uh, the total installed base in Exchange. And, uh, Michael, you had some comments on that. Yeah. So, uh, basically, it all started with an article that Tony Redmond wrote uh, about, you know, uh, the number of mailboxes deployed in Office 365 and what those numbers would mean in terms of revenue, popularity, uh, basically leading to the the conclusion that the on-premises exchange uh, isn't dead. Um, but what drew the attention uh, from that article is not, you know, the, the numbers that, that 
uh, Tony uh, uses or make sense to me. Um, they they make a lot of sense, and based off on of his, his conclusion, uh, there's just a minimal. I think it was a five percentage of mailboxes that actually already moved to Office 365, leaving a whopping 90 90-ish even more percent uh, on-premises, uh, which means there's still a lot of future for the on-premises people uh, for now. But uh, there was one of the um, uh, the comments on on Tony's blog that that made more or that actually drew the attention. Uh, there was a guy that. Um, kind of vented his experiences with uh, cloud-based uh, solutions uh, and although that the, the the guy wasn't really talking about you know office 365 itself but rather a hosted solution um, he made some you know valid points uh, at least what I can think of uh, you know that the, the things he pointed out was that the cloud vendor wasn't really cooperative and that every time he wanted to do something he had to pay for it um, and that that was one of the reasons why he chose or the company that he worked with chose to move back on premises, uh, which kind of contradicts the entire every month's moving to the cloud idea that we're having <laughs> at the moment, right? So um, to be quite honest, I can kind of can relate to some of the arguments he's making, um, whether it is a hoster or Office 365, one thing that we shouldn't, you know, uh, uh, lose track of is the fact that you know you pay for what you get what you need so it's a pay-as-you-go thing um, so as long as you fit within the boundaries of whatever is offered you're good to go but as soon as soon as you need to step out of those those uh, those lines that's where it becomes more challenging um, and the same goes for uh, office 365 if you have a a need uh, or if you need services that are well within the defined boundaries of the exchange online plans then you'll have a awesome experience and and that's the case for my personal mailbox for instance I've been using office 365 as a paid um, customer for um, ever since the beginning and I'm very happy with it because it does what I expect it to do and even more than that but if I were to be a uh, company uh, heavily relying on whatever feature there isn't that isn't confined within the uh, enterprise plan then probably my experience would be different and that's bottom line what the guy tells me uh, or tells the as a comment on the blog um, that he isn't happy with cloud does that necessarily mean that cloud is rubbish uh, i'm not so yeah. sure actually um, <laughs> no uh, yeah i mean there's definitely a lot of these challenges you know and again it's hard to you know when you have a one size fit, fits all type model some companies don't fit in that model and that's that's where i see the most pain points with with cloud services be the 365 or somebody else's well the comments of the the guy was also uh, related to Having an, uh, keeping in mind that you ha need to have a back out plan in case the service disappoints or you um, have different plans or uh, need to offboard all the data is uh, yeah to make uh, some good uh, agreements with your with your cloud vendors uh, on how to achieve that and especially when large amounts of data are involved and the, these environments are all throttled. Um, yeah, it might take a while for you to get all the data on board. So, um. well, it, it, I, th I think this uh, the comment uh, uh, very good uh, explains why you have to check uh, with with your hoster or Office 365. Is uh, okay. How do you get in? But most importantly, what 
what when I want to do offboarding or uh, when I want to go out of it and not use your services anymore? Uh, does it mean uh, are there construction in place uh, that that is uh, are working as a sort of a vendor lock-in, and uh, well, this comment exactly he um, well he had troubles with uh, exporting all his data back to uh, his his on-prem environment and had to do it with PSTs. Well, if that is the offboarding solution your hoster is is providing, then you should really have to uh, calculate whether that is a problem for you or not, and then. In this case, it, it it was his only option. But for instance, Office 365 uh, has the option for a hybrid environment, so uh, it it could be uh, probably a lot less cumbersome to go back on-prem. Um, so, but basically, the lesson is uh, when you go to the cloud, um, examine how, how uh, you get rid of the cloud. Also, I think that is also yeah. important to know before you decide to go into the cloud uh, is is uh, what if when you want to leave the cloud for whatever reason. Yeah, sure, and, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, Michelle said it well that you need to define a backout plan for whatever yeah. reason uh, because, let's face it, you might be moving to the cloud right now, but business requirements can change over time and maybe in a year or two you find yourself in a situation that the cloud isn't what you're be, what you've been looking for or even worse you know if if uh, the NSA continues snooping in other people's <laughs> mailboxes then at one point in time your security officer might say hey well I've had enough of it let's just move back the cloud you're looking well, for. And, and even, <laughs> even even in other cases uh, like um, uh, acquisitions of companies. Sure. I had had to do an, 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 uh, a merger of two companies, of two organizations. One was uh, completely in Office 365, and the other one had a uh, hybrid configuration. So, well, there goes your hybrid uh, offboarding solution, a bit. So we had to t- use some other tools, but well, in that in that case, uh, you don't know that always uh, beforehand that you are. Uh, have to merge with another uh, organization, but still, it, it's still something you, um, uh, when you want to have a long-term uh, uh, IT vision, then that is something you have to consider. Yeah, um, absolutely. And you made a great point. You know, mergers and acquisitions; uh, those are probably the most common reasons why you might uh, move or not move, move back from the cloud. I mean. Um, and especially a hybrid can cause or can be one of the bigger pain points. But another thing to consider, um, not the least, is you know uh, infrastructure requirements towards bandwidth uh, connections because um, a lot of the bigger companies that I'm currently working with, uh, they're actually running into um, into issues getting their data into Office 365. Uh, they've got you know terabytes of email, and they have to get it to Microsoft one way or the other. And the only way to do that is you know use their internet connection, which in some cases only is a 100 meg line, which is pretty good you know in terms of enterprise connectivity. But it takes time to move that amount of data to Office 365. So I can imagine that it will take a lot of time to move it back. So from from that point of view, uh, having a backout plan is not, not only about, you know, 
preparing or thinking about what to do, but making sure that the pain points that you're having moving to the cloud are probably going to be the ones you're going to encounter when moving back. So the overall strategy should include everything. Um, basically, it's it's the same, but the other way around, right? So I, I, I do agree with the, with some of the, the points he made and um, maybe in some of the you know, of our next uh, episodes, we should pay some more attention into how we think they, that a backout plan should be or what we've been doing for a backout plan. Because for one, for every pilot that I've done for Office 365, I've created a sort of backout plan, uh, either formally written or at least communicated with uh, the key players uh, in the in the project so that they all know what's going to happen when we ever get, mo- get to move back. Um, but on that note, something interesting uh, just crossed my mind is that, um, you know, the biggest problem that I'm currently seeing moving to Office 365 is being throttled, uh, having larger amounts of data. But I don't know if any one of you saw that announcement earlier this week that there was a new ability to get uh, data into Azure um, by actually shipping off a uh, a disk to, to Microsoft to import some of the VHDs, I guess it was. Um, well, I'd, I'd for one would love to see that kind of feature come into Exchange Online to offload, you know, large amounts of data uh, one way or another to Office 365 without having to cross the WAN because that would save lots of time. Oh, that's a good point. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah I don't think yeah. I actually heard that. So you'd send them a oh. uh, a disk with uh, the machines on it? Uh, yeah, as far as I know, uh, and let me try to get uh, the article. Um, it would also be interesting, yeah, for, for, for Exchange to have the PSDs or something like that and then import it on-prem or, for instance, even in, in uh, other solutions than Exchange. There's such a thing? <laughs> well, there, there are. I, I'm starting a project migrating from a non-Exchange server to, to Exchange, so... I still have to know something about that other product. All I heard was PSTs and realized puppies were dying. Well, um, okay, sorry to to interrupt there, but that would be a very good solution, you know, that you'll be able to, you know, put all your PSTs or put PSTs on a disk and then ship them to Microsoft in one way or another. Uh, although that, you know, um, I don't really like PSTs, so I've got a lot of customers that got rid of them uh, over the last few years. So if I have to tell them, hey, you know what, yeah, as part of this project, let's just export a bunch of those mailboxes into a PST, put it on a disk, ship it to Microsoft, import the PST, yeah. and then make that happen, I don't think they would be too happy well, about it. I'd well, but that, there are two things about that, because um, there's one thing to use PSTs as, in a production environment as user continually, or mm-hmm. using PSTs as a... Uh, transport device. I think that there are two different things and um, Sure, sure. I, I, um, I do get I'm, your point, but th- those are different things. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that there isn't a difference and, and, and I agree and, and it's better than nothing. Hey, if, if Microsoft would say yeah. to us, hey, you now have the ability to ship PSTs over a disk to us and we'll import them for you, for you uh, so that you can do a Delta Sync afterwards, I'd be thrilled. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'd be jumping all over yeah, the right. place and say, yeah, I've been waiting but, for this long time. But but, I, I, database portability could be an, uh, an alternative. Well, the 
Yes, yes. Uh, I, it's a sort like feature, you know, kind of like yeah. exporting a large blob of data and then just importing it in, in one way or another. But I can see some of the technical issues with that um, because of, you know, pairing user IDs and, 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 and stuff. So, but anything that's that's quicker than creating PSDs or um, that, that's better, I'd be more than happy with. But if the conclusion of the exercise would be, hey, PSDs is what we know, PSDs is what works and uh, is the best way to go forward, then, oh, yeah, I'll have it. Yeah, that's, that's a valid point. Um, of course, I'm all for getting rid of PSTs anywhere, so. Oh, I hate them, but. Okay. <laughs> you, you would be surprised, uh, even after all those years being, you know, going around and telling people you shouldn't use PSDs, get them off your network, don't use them, do something else. How many people are still using them? I don't get it. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. I, I still it's got organizations. Yeah, I, I still got organizations that practically demand support for uh, PSDs, while. It's not supported when it's when it's on a network device, and there are a lot of caveats and stuff like that. And you try to explain it, but no, still want to have PSDs. Well, I've I've got a customer who has about I think five terabytes of PSDs, and that's just the reason why they are still sitting there because it's such a huge amount of data that they'll have to import. They didn't account for it in their uh, sizing of their systems, for one. And, you know, uh, the, the, the amount of effort they would need to get those PSTs imported properly into a archive mailbox, it would take them so much time. And as a result, also that so much money, they are just pushing back the project uh, because it, now it, it isn't really the time to do, you know, investments like that. Uh, at least that's their idea. I'm pretty sure that if we would calculate the cost of you know, running those on the network, on 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 end-user devices, and the risk of losing data, that that cost would be much higher. But still, it's it's a lot of it's a burden to get rid of them. And I do get that, but geez, five terabytes, people, come on. Yeah, that's going to take a while. Uh, next up, um, Winder, Windows Azure or Microsoft Azure uh, Active Directory Sync Tool. Um, is now available. Dave, uh, what do you know about this? Well, this is a, 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 there's a new version, and uh, one of the things that really struck me was that it was supported on the main controllers, and uh, that co combined with the password sync was, well, okay, this is great for, for really small customers um, uh, who want to go in the cloud but still need a local AD and stuff like that. So I was really excited, but there's a little caveat because it's only for the de developmental purposes so that that was a bit disappointing but still for for those who are testing and using a, using it in demos or labs or something like that then it uh, then you don't have to have a dedicated jsync uh, server um, but unfortunately now for for production environment it seems that it's still not supported um, which is something that I hope that is um, well, addressed in the future, just to uh, save some some installations of servers, especially smaller uh, companies tend to want to uh, consolidate all their functions on, on, on servers just to limit cost and, and maintenance. So, so that was the the, the update of the Tearsync tool. With, you, uh, you know, I. I news. I saw that whole development purposes, you know, kind of disclaimer, and the first thing that came to mind was, okay, so it's a beta. 
<laughs> yeah, that's what be. Yeah. You know, they want to send it out. They want people to use it, report back issues before they lift that disclaimer and say, okay, you can use it, you know, in production. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really hope that that is the case because I think that a lot of smaller companies would be, especially in the Netherlands, we've got small, much smaller companies than in, for instance, the U.S. And uh, we have had some uh, cases that, uh, well, uh, before the password sync, we had, you had to put uh, several ADFS servers. So uh, when you had you want to save one exchange server, then you had to introduce, a, uh, for instance, two servers, an ADFS proxy and an ADF. ADFS server and a DirSync server. Now, well, with password sync and the ability to uh, place uh, DirSync on a domain controller, uh, then you would lose the Exchange server and don't have any uh, specific need for an ADFS server when you don't need it for for uh, other reasons. And that would be, uh, I think, for uh, some companies. Uh, a uh, more attractive scenario to move to Office 365 while keeping their local uh, AD intact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Valid point. All right, good info, thanks. Uh, next, a topic that we all love to deal with, licensing. And uh, <sighs> if you've had to figure out, um, especially uh, like during a true-up with Microsoft, you know, the number of uh, licenses that you should have, well, uh, MVP uh, Oliver Mazzesi has come up with the perfect solution. He wrote a script that outputs everything you need to know based on a review of the Exchange environment. So it will tell you how many standard CALs uh, you should have, uh, whether DLP is enabled, how many UM users you have, um, archived mailboxes, um, retention policies that uh, are applied to users, uh, journaling accounts, uh, everything, and it tells you at the end, um, you know, how many standard cows you should have and how many enterprise cows you should have. And there's there's a couple of you know commandlets that you can use in PowerShell to kind of dig through some of this information. But if you look up that information in the chum file, um, you know, the Exchange help file, uh, some of that information is wrong. And so hopefully that, that'll get corrected soon. But, you know, a, an easier solution is just to use this script and let it spit out um, everything that it finds. And, and that should save you a lot of time. So, uh, cool. yeah, thanks to Oliver for, for doing that. We'll certainly get a, a link up uh, uh, for that script. And then um, another script, our own uh, Paul Cunningham has updated his test exchange server health script, which is very popular. It's now been bumped up to version uh, 1.06. And um, if you want to look through, uh, have a script that looks through your environment and reports back in kind of a nicely formatted uh, HTML uh, report with, you know, green, yellow, uh, and, and red squares and, and everything, um, this is a fabulous script. I know that there's been tens of thousands of downloads of, of this script, and, and Paul's done a, a fabulous job on this. So, uh, so check that out. That's uh, Test Exchange Server Health. Uh, dot ps1 and we'll get a link out uh, for that as well and the last topic for a uh, link for this episode is uh, something that was just released today and that is the november uh, 2013 link client updates and uh, uh, justin you took a quick look through uh, what's being fixed here and, and what's happening 
Yeah, I did Pat. There's um, a whole bunch of fixes that uh, have been released as part of this update, uh, and and they're quite sort of you know fix some individual scenarios and things um, that you know probably affected a number of different customers worldwide. But the one that I can see here that's fixed is um, the present status isn't updated based on Exchange Calendar in Link 2013, which was a bit of a um, a, a sort of niggling problem uh, that reared its head in, in the CU previous to this one, whereby when uh, you had a meeting scheduled and uh, it ticked over into that meeting, your presence wouldn't be updated to, in a meeting for that. So um, it, it appears that's been fixed in this cumulative update with uh, a whole bunch of other uh problems around things like uh, resource forests and uh, proxy authentication as well. So um, it looks like this this update does go a long way to just fixing some of those niggling issues that customers have been having with Link 2013. Excellent, excellent. And I'm, I'm looking at the KB article right now, and, and there are still these prerequisites that you have, uh, that you should have installed uh, listed at the bottom. So so make sure you read that and, uh, and get those installed so that you don't run into some other problems. And heading over to events, uh, we have one event listed, and uh, our own Stahl Hansen has, uh, m- wants to, us to mention that the UC User Group for Norway will have their November meeting pretty soon, and we will have a link to the uh, meetup page for that so you can sign up for it. The meeting is on uh, this coming Wednesday, November 13th. So if you're in Norway and want to int- uh, attend and, uh, and meet Stahl and hear some great content, uh, be sure to sign up for that. And that does it for this week. Uh, I want to thank uh, all my co-hosts, John, Justin, Michael, Michelle, and uh, Dave. Thanks, guys, for participating. And uh, our producer... Yeah, it's 30 episodes. That's crazy. Yeah, 30. Who who knew? Uh, we, we were flabbergasted by the support we've gotten, and... Uh, and hopefully everybody out there enjoys listening to the podcast. And uh, we're always open for ideas and questions and comments. And, and I think we get to them in a pretty timely manner. So um, if you have a question that you'd like us to answer, by, by all means, uh, post it on our Facebook page or send us a tweet. Uh, this episode is proudly sponsored by Instant Technologies with solutions for link e-discovery, real-time alerts, and contact center deployments. For information on Instant or to try a free evaluation, visit instant-tech.com or download and try their Link eDiscovery application at tryhrauditor.com. As always, we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website at theucarchitects.com. Follow us on Twitter at The UC Architects. Uh, view our Facebook webpage at uh, facebook.com slash The UC Architects. And we have a group on LinkedIn. Our podcast episodes are available on our Windows Phone app, the iTunes Store, the Zoom Marketplace, and in your favorite RSS podcast clients such as Outlook. See our website for links to everything. And we'll see you back for the next episode with Steve Hosting. Steve Hosting.